Do it, yeah, do it again. Oh, you want the you want the bright back? Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Uh, ben, please don't ever say you want the broke back to my husband again. <laughs> There's something I learned. Great great double feature right there. Yes. Seriously, man. Why do you think I played it? Hello and welcome to FilmNerds.com. I am uh, your host, Matt Scalisi, and we are here to discuss uh, what is certainly the biggest story of the summer so far here in 2010, and uh, a movie that I think we all anticipated we'd be ready to talk about when we did our summer preview podcast earlier this year, and that would be Christopher Nolan's Inception. Uh, Now, this movie sort of entered the fray as the most highly anticipated movie of the summer with a $150 million budget and a completely original storyline that most of us knew very little about. Uh, And so far, the film appears to have met or exceeded the expectations of pretty much everybody, audiences and critics, and it's, uh, it's bringing in rave reviews and pulling in over $60 million in the opening weekend. And actually, as we record this, it's already surpassed... 100 million worldwide, so it's definitely a, uh, a legitimate hit at this point. Uh, and guys, I just kind of want to dive right into this. There's there's so much that we can talk about in this movie, but I just want to hear, you know, everybody's sort of initial thoughts. I know that um, that Ben Flanagan, who is uh, who's joining us, and Ben Stark, our other uh, our other participant here in the conference. Uh, you guys have both seen the movie twice. Francesca, my wife, and uh, and myself have seen it once so far. Um, but, you know, I, I just kind of want to get everybody's initial reaction. I'm pretty sure we all have at least partly positive reviews. But let, let's start with you, Ben Stark. Uh, you know, I know I know you're a guy who is has always been somebody who who sort of takes a, a very serious approach to the to the mainstream blockbuster. You and I did a series about that at, at one point. How does this movie stack up as far as, you know, sort of summer blockbusters? I mean, it's certainly unconventional, I guess. Um, yeah, I think uh, it, it does a lot of the same things that, that The Dark Knight does and that we talked about in that show, um, in that uh, Nolan just kind of justifies summer blockbuster fun. And I think it's a, it's... And in The Dark Knight, he justified that by making the movie about chaos, and therefore, when when a film is about chaos, there's going to be a lot of explosions and destruction. Um, and here, uh, it's pretty interesting because uh, he he makes a movie that, w- as a movie about dreams, and as each dream kind of folds onto another dream, it becomes almost more like a movie, um, and it almost plays like a movie in relation to the person dreaming the dream, um, which I think is pretty interesting and ha- goes hand-in-hand hand with allowing him to make a movie that's not just about movies but is exciting on uh, in a way that only movies can be exciting. So I think it 
it again does similar things as the Dark Knight, and it kind of justifies a summer blockbuster as a as an intelligent um, reflection almost on itself. Ben Flanagan, uh, you know, th- this is uh, you and I. You and I actually saw this together. To, what what do you feel like a typical audience reaction? Has been so far sitting in the theater. You know, you, you've got you've got kind of all types. This is a this is a big budget, you know, well promoted movie that obviously a lot of people are seeing. Just from just from your experience in the theaters so far, and just from talking to people you know, how do you think the typical movie going audience is sort of receiving this movie? Well, I think it's been a mixed response, and I don't mean good and bad mixed together after they've seen the movie because I think the reaction's been generally positive, but while I'm watching the movie each time while I've watched the movie, I've noticed there have been a lot of audible shrugs and sighs from uh, the audience members, and I've, I've seen it with two packed houses, and this movie is a lot to process as it's happening. They're, they're constantly talking, there they're are confusing things being said, and there are confusing images, uh, but by the end, after the final shot, when you these sounds that I was that I was hearing, they turn into applause and uh, hell yes and laughter and, and everybody that's walking out. It was it was uh, seldom that I heard somebody say that movie sucked or uh, it was boring. Even when you have heady material like this, which Christopher Nolan is well known for at this point, I think that. He's not necessarily talking down to his audience, and I think that they appreciate being challenged in a movie theater, especially during the summertime, especially when, good Lord, it's been as dumbed down lately as it has been, especially this year with movies like The Sorcerer's Apprentice, which went up against Inception this weekend, and The Prince of Persia, and Sex and the City 2 in previous weeks, and Francesca's favorite, Twilight Eclipse. Uh, it's like American, or it's mainstream audiences in general have really been hurting for something to not only wow them with great spectacle in terms of action sequences and other set pieces, but to also challenge their minds and excite them cerebrally. Well, and you know, Ben, I actually worry sometimes that the, these these many years here of, of people just being bludgeoned with, with movies that do play to the lowest common denominator, I've worried that it's that it's eventually going to start lowering people's expectations and even lowering their, uh, the, the standards of, of what it is that they enjoy at the movies. You know, Francesca, I mean, you work, you, you work with, uh, you know, with people of different age groups than you. And, uh, and I'm sure you come into contact with a lot of people. I mean, how do you feel like at least let's, let's just say the, the female audiences that you've spoken to, how do you how do you feel like they've reacted to Inception? Well, to be fair, the only female who I've spoken to about this is a fifty-something-year-old woman who lives um, in a rural part of Alabama, which does not necessarily mean what happened was this. I should <laughs> just say first that this podcast is definitely not spoiler-free at all. Oh. We're, we intend on fully discussing every aspect of the movie, so if you haven't seen the movie, uh, don't listen to the podcast. Sorry. I was speaking to another younger coworker about having seen this movie, and I was saying, oh, it's really great, and you leave the theater, and you're, like, mulling things over, 
And she kind of walked through the room and overheard me and later said to me, like, oh, you saw Inception? And I said, yeah, oh, it was so good, wasn't it? And she was like, I don't know. My husband fell asleep in the first five minutes. She's like, <laughs> and I said, she was like, I mean, it was confusing. And I said, well, yeah, but, like, wasn't that great how the ending was kind of ambiguous? And she was like, no, it wasn't. He woke up on the plane. And I said, right, but, no, he woke up on the plane. And I said, right, but, like, with the top and it cut off before you saw what happened. She said, and she just looked at me blankly and blinked a few times and said, he woke up on the plane. It, it was, he woke up. I was like, okay. <laughs> so clearly some of the audience may have missed the finer points and the uh, subtleties of the film. Well, I mean, that is that is one example. But, I mean, I, 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 do, I do worry, you know, not worry, but I, I think that sometimes, you know, look, it's clear the movies that we're talking about that have been dumbed down for audiences the last several years here, and to some extent it's been done for a lot longer than that. They they do well, you know, uh, and I and I wonder, I wonder how much Inception's you know intellectually challenging, you know, ideas. I wonder how how well that's that's going to serve it when we're talking about you know maybe word of mouth or repeat viewings among people who really aren't used to seeing a movie like this. I mean, I mean, I think uh, I think there's a I mean that 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 example might be a, the exception or something, but um, I think I think most people can appreciate it on just a plot level, um, and, and I think it's not it's not like Primer where that's a movie where the experience of the story is so subjective that um, the perspective actually influences the storytelling so much so that it, it's so confusing that you can't really process the story. Um, and this this isn't necessarily like that. Um, so I think, although yeah, the ending might be a little bit ambiguous. Um, I, I don't know if it's necessarily that that heady that people can't just get the James Bond thrill out of it. Yeah, but I mean, believe it or not, I I feel like the the dream within a dream within a dream structure of it. Uh, I mean, look, certainly all of us here talking about it, I'm sure we're following what was going on but I, that's that's ask, don't you think that's a <laughs> yeah, no you have no faith in america i'm just saying i i think it is asking it look it certainly asks more of audiences than huh? most of the other movies that we see that get the the kind of uh, uh the kind of budget and the kind of promotion that inception got well really I mean, my example is i mean yes she is the exception but probably not that big of an exception and at the end of the day, you know, I think probably she got, you know, a couple dreams in and was like, this is too hard to keep up with. I hope they do what they need to do before the van hits the water. <laughs> right, they but did. I, think, We're done. I, think, I think that that lady probably approaches Transformers the same way. I can't tell you what the plot of either of the Transformers movies was. <laughs> Good and, and the same goes for, like, Pirates of the Caribbean. I think that's just, a, right now, there's a, there's a trend in big-budget Hollywood spectacles where it's like, take as much plot as your 19 writers can come up with and cram it into three hours. And uh, and I think the only person that does that well is Christopher Nolan. I mean, and he does it with one of, you know, two or three writers. But I think, I think complexity-wise, I think those, those crappier movies are just as hard to understand because they have so many intercutting motivations and layered... Uh, 
personalities that you just can't ever really make heads or tails of them. Well, and actually, if anything, I think because his plot was so rich, I think he was kind of really trying to lay it out so people could stay with him. I mean, Ellen Page was basically there to be your exposition character. Like, she was the one who came in and said, but what is it, and what's the rule of, and could you explain one more time for the audience? I mean, he was laying it out. He wanted you to understand it. Definitely, yeah. And a lot of that's a big complaint coming uh, from, from a lot of critics is that there's too much exposition. So. I don't know. I needed it to hang on. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was pretty helpful. Um, ben Ben Flanagan, I want to I want to start this one with you. You know, I know you because you've been a big fan of Christopher Nolan for a while now. I know you you were uh, particularly I know you were really big on the Prestige and and kind of championed that movie for a while. Um, you know, I, I want to talk about kind of where Inception falls in terms of Christopher Nolan's body of work at this point, is this, you know, do, do you think this is kind of right along, does this really feel very much the same for for Christopher Nolan's work so far? Is this a kind of a step in a new direction for him? Where does, where does this sort of stack up with the rest of his work in your mind? I'd go talk to uh, Christopher Nolan. I, I, for me, I've only seen it twice now, and I rank it, Right under the prestige, but the prestige, like you, like you just said, that's a movie that I really adore and one that I've watched countless times. If it's on television, no matter where it is, I'm going to sit there and watch it and ride it out and, uh, uh, learn new things that I didn't learn the previous 30 times that I had seen it. And I, I think that there's a similar, uh, feel here with Inception. I think this is one we're going to really learn to uh, rewatch and appreciate uh, with each viewing. Of course, as is the case with most Christopher Nolan movies, and I think that this yes, this is as pure a Christopher Nolan experience as you're going to get. But yes, absolutely, I think that he not only challenged us, but he challenged himself as a storyteller. I think that this isn't like much we've ever seen before. I think not only is he is he telling a, a different kind of story, he's finding new ways to tell it. And you mentioned the van uh, hitting the water, and whether or not audiences, you know, mass audiences can follow three dreams basically going at one time. Really four, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I guess we, we got we got a free pass here. Uh, so we're starting at the van falling is the first dream. The next dream is the hotel where Arthur is floating around. And the third dream is the snow level, the hospital, right? And the I, like, I like calling it the snow level. They did call well, them levels. Well, look, yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. But, but also, I mean, we, I can, we can talk about this point later. This movie very much feels like a video game. And, you know, we can talk about that later. But anyway, and so the fourth level is uh, not quite limbo. It's the where Ariadne and Cobb are seeing Maul, right? That's the fourth level. Is, and is, that, not, that, is that not yeah, limbo? Yeah, that's, that's limbo. Yeah. No, it's not limbo. That is another dream. Limbo. Dude, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't want to have to edit something out, but I've got this diagram in front of me that I found online. Do you want? Do you guys want me to send it to you? <laughs> no, 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 listen, 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 not, listen. Not, not to... Uh, okay, okay, let's lay it out here, man. Here's why, it's, here's why that's not limbo and that's a dream. 
Because, because, uh, Saito, what's his name? Leo gets stabbed, does he not? By Maul. And once he gets stabbed, it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird, uh, moment there because he gets stabbed by Maul, then Maul gets shot by Ariadne, Ariadne falls for the kick, the, you know, the, the, se- the sequence of kicks. So once he gets stabbed, you have this little scene where it's like he didn't get stabbed at all, uh, yeah. because Ariadne says something to him like, go find Saito, and he says, I will. He's not writhing in pain after being stabbed in the gut by a butcher knife. And then you have this little moment between him and Maul where he basically lets her go. So, did, I mean, first of all... But all of limbo was created, all of that limbo was created by him, was it not? Uh, see, yeah, see, when I watched it, I thought, okay, this is limbo. But he had to go to, and he woke up at another level on the beach after he had been stabbed. So I thought when he died in the dream after being stabbed, he woke up on the beach in limbo where he went to go find Saito. So you're thinking that the, what they were in was the the last reality that or the last dream level that he built with his wife, and then he died, and then he went to limbo on the beach at the beginning of the movie. Well, see, you say the last dream level that he built with his wife, but were they not? Was it not uh, explicitly told that they were in limbo together? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and so they had to they had to uh, let a train run over their skulls to get out of limbo. Uh, the most horrifying suicide I've ever seen in my life. Um, Gotta be quick, though. Yeah, I guess, man. And okay, and before I just blather on, speaking of the trains, <laughs> did, did did anybody catch did anybody catch the uh, line at, towards the beginning when they're when they finally wake up on the train? Yeah. In reality, where Leo says, "I don't like trains." Yeah, oh, I, I got that second that. time. Yeah, that, that was pretty awesome. That's great. So anyway, I don't really remember what point I was making, Matt. I just kind of like <laughs> went. Level into level into level. Oh, I know what I was saying. I know what I was saying. Where you have uh, Christopher Nolan challenging the audiences in terms of showing these, basically the, the, these four levels of a of, of a story. You've got the four dreams going on at the same time, or limbo, whatever you want to call it. And what's the editor's name, Ben? I have no idea. Okay, the dude that earned his money. Let's call him that. <laughs> yeah. Um, find it for you really quick, and then I can... Yeah, but I, just the fact that Christopher Nolan has... Four things happening at once, something that I think was probably pulled off best uh, in the past by maybe Return of the Jedi when you've got like four different battle sequences and threads going on. And I, I feel like he communicated it well enough to where the audience totally followed every single second of it. Because, I mean, every time you see that van inching closer to the water, you think, oh, crap, are they going to make it? You know what I mean? Before, before the kick sets in. And... I don't know, man. I like the, the first time I saw it. I, I, I'll say it was a weird experience because I felt like the movie kind of left me behind. But the second time, I was on the edge of my seat, man. Yeah, it really works well the second time. I just got out of the showing like forty-five minutes ago, and it, it's, it, it's weird because like the first time I saw it, I was like, I had my guard up, and then I wasn't. I, I was pretty sure I loved it after I saw it, but then like I watch it the second time, and everything is more enjoyable. Like even the action sequences like work better the second time, which is something you can rarely say about any movie. Uh, just for the record, the 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 editor is Lee Smith, who also edited uh, both of Nolan's Batman movies and The Prestige. Oscar winner Lee Smith. Yeah, for real. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to hear you guys who have now seen the movie a second time and and obviously have have gotten a chance to take in a few more of the details that you know some that a first time viewer isn't doesn't even know to look for really. And you know, I was sort of asking Ben a few things when I first walked out of the movie uh, that I was confused on, and I, I want to get I want to I want to sort of clear up a couple of things that I, I imagine I'm not the only one that had these questions coming out of it. Um, and, and and maybe I am, and this will just be the section of the podcast where Matt's an idiot and it gets cleared <laughs> up. But the, 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 there are a couple of things regarding the sort of relationships of some of these characters. And Ben, I talked about this with you a little. Uh, but the Michael Caine character, uh, is, is it pretty clear to everybody else that he is supposed to be Dom's father his father-in-law that's what i thought initially ben uh but i have read several places and ben flanagan told me this that he's supposed to be dom's actual father yeah he's he's referred go ahead what makes him so you're saying that he's maul's father yeah i thought that I, i can't tell you why I just thought it was... <laughs> I thought the same thing, well, Stark. My thinking was that he he wasn't, because why would uh, Mal's parents have anything to do with him if they thought that he had killed their daughter? Yeah, that, that logic hit me the second time I watched it. I was like, you know, he's talking pretty casually to this guy that may or may not have killed his, his daughter, and even if he didn't, at least had some sort of influence on her before she killed herself. Well, well let, me, let me ask this then, uh, because this was another point of, of confusion for me. Um... Yeah, French. And Ben and Ben Stark, you just saw it, so maybe you can clear this up. I Probably could, not. I could swear to you that I that at some point we hear the the grandmother, that the person who's referred to as the as Dom's kids, you know, when he's talking to them on the phone, he says your grandmother. Uh, I could swear that we heard her voice uh, enough over the phone, and that yeah. she was French. Yeah. Yeah. You, is that, you can full of it, man. I, no. I, heard her, I heard her voice, but I, in no way did I hear a French accent. I'm it's sorry. not a French accent. It's like French. It's like not English, I don't think. Or it's, it's like there's French. It's definitely English. I mean, just <laughs> like, it's, it's like, come it's, away, come away, children. That sounded like a French accent that you just put on to me. No, it sounded like a Japanese accent. I don't know if it just sounds <laughs> that, that, oh, that was the maybe there's a connection. Maybe Watanabe yeah. is not the grandmother <laughs> of. His dream children. So, okay, so the older generation is maybe Michael Caine is his dad, and the grandmother taking care of the kids is her mom. Well, I what, think. I look, understand. look, here's here. Yeah, and look, this is bringing up because now we're four people who all cannot really decide what uh, what is exactly going on here. But I I gathered at least I, I think we have at least enough evidence to say that the grandmother in question is Maul's mom because. She seems to have whoever it is seems to have an aversion to talking to Dom, and obviously Maul's parents would have reason to not like Dom because I, I assume that that they don't have any more information about Maul's death than anybody else does. All right, Make, well, so anyway, that's why. Wait, I think, wait, wait. Yeah, let's not move on here yet okay, because I think I think those two characters are uh, essential to the story, and I haven't cracked that code just yet because I mean, no one. <laughs> Look, I, I don't think Nolan is a guy who would have written this script starting 10 years ago 
and would have basically uh, let a bunch of loose ends just sort of hang there by the time he made the movie. I think that everything you see or hear is there for a reason in this movie. And when we hear the grandmother, yet we do not see her at the end of the movie, I think that means something. Because, I mean, it's implied that she is there at that house with those kids, yet we don't see her. We see Michael Caine. And so how did Michael Caine get there? Why is Michael Caine British? And, you know, if he... if if he can't be anything but, of course. But I'm saying... But I'm saying, and he's Leo's dad. I mean, I thought that that was kind of like a slight reference to the Nolan brothers anyway, because you got one British, one American, so it's like, well, it could happen. Well, you know I, what I mean? I wondered if that wasn't, even though I fall in the camp that I think he actually did get out, but I wondered if that couldn't possibly be a tip of the hat. To, if he was in a dream, he wouldn't have somebody he didn't like there since he's made his peace. And right. So but if they he set up, that they reality, set up. then he might want his dad there, but not her mom. They set up early in the movie that he's going over, uh, going to the U.S., that he's going to bring him, because he tells his kids over the phone. Ah, if that's true. Yeah, yeah, your grandfather's like, coming to bring you something, yeah. Yeah, so Unless he gives that's him stuffed animals. grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he gives, he gives them the back of stuffed animals. This great line where, what does he say, like, a few stuffed animals isn't going to convince them you have, they have a father or something like that? That's, right. that's a good line. But uh, do you remember in that scene, though, because, I mean, a lot of people have this Dom is still stuck in the dream theme. You remember that that scene? There's a line where Michael Caine tells him to come back to reality. Yeah. So I mean, a lot but of people, a lot of people have the theory that they're saying that all of these characters serve as projections that are trying to push Cobb uh, literally back to reality out of his dream. And I mean, if that's true, then I think that that line certainly supports that theory. I think uh, there's two things that 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 struck me the second time about that theory. One is the, the clearly the top. He's like constantly checking the top to see if it keeps spinning. And in that first scene that he does that, he's got a gun in his tent, so he's yeah. watching it spin and it doesn't and it, it falls. And if it was going to keep spinning, it was going to blow his brains out. Right. Which, I, which I, I don't know what that really informs. It's just awesome. Um, and then uh, a friend of mine, after I saw the movie the first time, he said it's clearly a dream because the kids are wearing the same thing in the end that they were wearing in his memory. And so I like really watched out for that this time, but they're not. They're wearing very similar things because Nolan is a tricky bastard. Well, but, she's wearing like a white shirt under the dress exactly, this time, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Also, people have pointed out that they are uh, listed in the credits as as different actors. So there, there's something like, for instance... Uh, one of the kids is listed as, you know, so and so at three years old, and then so and so at five years old. Some something like that, basically. Oh. So, so I think they're they're intended to be basically different characters. And you see their faces this time too. And so, and I think the whole point is <laughs> that he wasn't able to ever look at their faces. Like even when he would see them on the beach or whenever he would see them, he would turn his head so so he would avoid their turning around and they're making eye contact, you know what I mean? Because I don't think he wanted to face those demon dream kids anymore uh, before he finally woke up and was able to see him with his own eyes, you know, and he finally was able to do that. Or he was afraid of two more projections that would keep him there for even longer. Yeah. Go ahead, sorry. (laughs) Well, Ben Stark, (laughs) what you said about him watching the top with a gun, again, I I just didn't ever make that connection, but that then also adds another element to the end scene that if he was in a dream, he didn't care anymore. 
Whereas, you know, at the beginning of the film, if he had found out he was in a dream, he wanted to kill himself so he could be out of it. And at the end, he spun the top and walked away. So if it was a dream, he didn't care anymore if he stayed there, which I didn't think about. So thank you for adding another level of confusion. You jerk. All right, well, throw down the, throw down the gauntlet here, Matt. Francesca pretty much just did. I mean, let's ask the big question. Does the top stay up or does it go down? And I think she pretty much just she, – she, I think Francesca and I share a similar theory here. Because, I mean, if it stays up, he's still in a dream. If it, if it uh, wobbles and falls, it's reality, right? And so, I mean, for the listeners out there, uh, <laughs> I think they've seen it by now. But, I mean, obviously it stays up, but it starts to wobble, and then it cuts to black to imply, you know, half half empty or half full, so to speak, you decide. And I think the point that Nolan is making here is that it doesn't matter. Cobb has accepted this as his reality. He's not interested in whether or not it even falls because he doesn't even watch to see if it does or doesn't. He's gone out there because he, he finally has been reunited with his kids and he's let them all go. So whether or not it's reality... He couldn't care less at this point. He's a happy guy. Uh, I I have to say I I completely agree with what you just said. I mean I think I think it's obviously it's it's more of a thematic device than a than a than a plot device. The ending it's it's you know and I I think it's 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 funny to me a little bit and interesting that. I think that's going to be a big sort of raging debate between fans of the movie is what they think the ending of it really is. And, of, of, you know, it's I, I suppose it's as good an argument as any to have about the movie. But it, I think in the end it really – it's not intended to have an answer. And it's, it's uh, you know, the point of the ending, I think, is that we don't know. And, and, it's, and we shouldn't care. Well, yeah, but, but yeah, exactly. That, that – in a way, it's it's great that you have, it's it's great that the answer to the real question is the same whether the top stays up or not. Um, but you know, I think it, it's 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 a good thing for the movie to certainly to have some a, a point that people can really discuss and debate about. It's gonna it's gonna help the movie as far as its sort of popularity with especially with sort of the internet crowd, which I you know. As I'm looking here, I think it's already been called like the third best movie of all time on IMDb, which again, the IMDb list is pretty ridiculous. But, um, you know, I think the the ambiguous ending was a great idea. I think it's fun and I think uh, I think it serves more. It serves more the sort of uh, the intellectual discussion of the movie than it does uh, as a real hard resolution of the story. Matt, can I ask Ben a question? Yeah, go ahead. Um, ben, you like you're on the record uh, as you know being concerned with filmmakers, writer directors particularly. I would say, uh, you know how they treat their characters. I guess, and I, I'm wondering, do you think that this is a happy ending that we see in Inception, and do you think that Nolan, who is often regarded as a filmmaker with uh, cold tendencies in how he treats his characters, giving often giving them grim outlooks, uh, with the exception of maybe one or two movies. And I, I say including this, but Ben, uh, 
how do you think Nolan treats his characters here, namely Don Cobb and Malt, you know, um, even? Do you think that this movie gives us a happy ending, a Nolan happy ending? Well, I mean, I, uh, first of all, I think uh, I, I read this this funny thing. I, I don't know who it was that wrote this. It may have been uh, Devin, the guy from Chud. But uh, they said something like some studio executive was the one that called Christopher Nolan a, a cold person that makes cold movies. And uh, this internet writer interpreted that line by the executive to just mean the executive invited Nolan out to get hookers, and Nolan wouldn't take him up on it. So the person was like, oh, he, he's, he's, he doesn't have a soul. Uh, so I just think that's a, that's a funny thing. But now it's been mangled by this second telling of it. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> I, well, that, that was already a first, uh, secondhand uh, telling of it. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, first of all, I'll take issue with that. I don't think Nolan is, is at all a cold filmmaker. Um, I think we've, we've just been trained as a culture to expect melodrama in every single piece of entertainment we get. So that when we come across something that's more classically emotional, um, we regard it as not emotional at all. Um, and you can't you can't tell me that the end of the Dark Knight and the end of this movie aren't like really very emotional. Um, but anyway, uh, no, I think I think Nolan is. Um, I think Nolan is. Uh, I think the universe of Nolan's movies are all pretty fair to the lead characters, except for maybe following. Um, and I, I don't, I don't take issue with unhappy endings. Um, although I take issue if, if, if a movie, cer- if, if a movie has a clearly unhappy ending, um, or just a, uh, a bleak, a, a super bleak ending, it, it probably is too intentional. But, um, I, I think, uh, I think, yeah, I think the movie's pretty fair to the characters for the for for the reasons that you guys stated, which I hadn't even thought about. So thank you for that. But if if it is all a dream, then yeah, that could be perceived as cruel because all he wants to do is escape the dream world. But at the same time, even if it is a dream, if he's accepted um, the reality that's been given to him, then then that's pretty optimistic because the guy ends up happy. And if you think about it, nobody in the entire scope of the movie dies except for his wife. So, I mean, that's a pretty... I mean, more people die in Toy Story, don't they? Oh, don't talk about it. Oh, sorry, spoilers. For, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, no, I just am going to start crying. Um, uh, well, I, I, wanna, I have one other little minor misinterpretation issue, perhaps, <laughs> that I want to ask you guys about as well. Um... And that is, that is Maul's sort of secret that she hides. And, and we, we get to see it in a, in a flashback. And, and what we see is Maul putting the top inside her, you know, her sort of mental safe, I guess. Now, I want to know what you guys think about this. Because I guess when I was watching it, for some reason, I sort of interpreted that as maybe the... The, the, the top was supposed to just be kind of a signifier for whatever it was that she was hiding and that we weren't really supposed to know exactly what it was that she was trying to hide because obviously Dom wouldn't know what it was. Um, but I, I, I've, I've talked to some other people and, I, and Ben being one of them that said that the, it, it actually was supposed to be the top itself and that there's a good reason for that. 
well, I, I don't know. Francesca sort of seems to have a, an idea here. Tell what do you think is the significance of why the top is what Maul was hiding in her safe? Well, I, I took it on a face value that she was literally didn't want to know anymore whether or not she was in reality or a dream. And as he said, he had, I don't know what you say, performed inception, incepted her, you know, secret. And he had gotten in there and planted this idea, which was that to escape this, you know, I, I'm, again, I'm not the smartest, you know, person in the room on the computer right now, but... I took it to mean she had decided she didn't want to know anymore that she was in a dream. She just wanted this to be her reality. And the reason he planted the idea that, you know, to be happy you have to kill yourself or whatever was because he wanted to leave and he wanted her to want to leave as well. I, yeah, exactly. I think that that that's pretty much it on the nose. That's what Nolan communicates, that she accepted this as reality. She did not want to even try to figure, you know, distinguish the two or the five, depending on how deep they were. But, uh, you know, in Cobb at that point, he still knew the difference. He's, you know, he knew that they were still in a dream and he <coughs> felt obligated to, yes, perform inception. Uh, that sounds dirty. <laughs> yeah, it really does. It sounds like a euphemism. And he, he had to, he had to perform inception to force her way out of the dream. Now, Matt and all of you, um, there's a, you know, huge theory, you know, that the, the whole Cobb is still in a dream theory, uh, based on his encounter with Maul, um, when they're in buildings across from each other on their anniversary, and she is telling him, look, we're still in a dream, let's jump and wake up. And, you know, she jumps, he doesn't. Now, we're meant to accept that as reality. I think we're meant to, or on the surface we are. But do you all think there is any weight to those arguments that Maul, at that moment, escaped from their dream in Cobb State? Whoa. Whoa. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'd, I I certainly can tell you on my on one viewing... I don't really remember any evidence that would suggest that the the top level, let's call it, since we don't want to call it reality, but the, the top level of things that we experience most of the movie from, I don't think we saw any evidence to suggest that that was a dream. Sp- specifically, I don't know. Did did you Ben? Either 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 Ben? <laughs> uh, I I thought I don't subscribe to the theory that the ending is a dream. So, I thought that the people that believed that it that was a dream would also then, in fact, believe that the movie had been a dream since the first time we see reality, which is to say the first time we see the four guys on the train sleeping. That that is a dream as well. I think, though, that maybe Nolan, in his way, in his deliciously smart, writery way, was trying to play fair with the audience by going, look, I'm giving you this little top out. And if you see a top fall over, I, the you know author of this crazy web, am telling you this is reality. Like I think he did that for us, so that you could, you know, some have some sense of reason and reality. I think that I mean yes, you could you could say that everything was a dream, and we were all dreaming when we were in the and we were plugged in, we were in the theater. But I think he is giving us this gift of 
I'm playing it straight with you guys. Here's the top. This is how you, as well as the characters, know you're in reality. I'm with you, Francesca. I think that I think we should pretty much take everything that we see on screen at face value, especially during the reality portions of the movie. Because, look, if any of these Cobb is still in a dream theories are true, then I personally think that the rest of the characters who we really haven't talked about right now are rendered completely ineffective or useless, you know? Otherwise, they're just projections, and that's it. And anything they do um, does not affect, you know, the plot of the movie, you know, the overarching uh, point of the movie, which is to, you know, complete the heist and get Cobb back to his kids. Right, why would there be, why would there even be scenes uh, independent of Cobb? Uh, if if exactly. one of the other characters well, were, were the, anything but constructs of his imagination anyway. Well, and him, our touchstone of reality is important because otherwise, if he didn't have that in there, it would you could leave the theater going, it was only a dream, which is the worst feeling after you've, you know, given yeah. this much time to a narrative to have it be told it was only a dream. And he's playing it straight with us and going, no, these are the parts that are dreams, but you still have reality, and that keeps it from being... A waste of my time. I'm glad Francesca's finally admitting what I said all along about Shutter Island, by the way. But but Ben Stark, did you? Did you no, what did you no. want to say? Uh, well, I think uh, I think one theory um, that people have to explain the other characters was that if the if the whole movie is a dream, it's actually a dream happening because one of the characters is actually. Um, we still got to find a good verb. Uh, in, incepting that ass on Leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> or whatever, and, and that they're actually that the whole movie is actually an, dream. an inception plan to in, to get him to recover from the guilt that he felt over his wife. Like that's what I read a, a theory about that, which I think is pretty pretty elaborate. Yeah, made of paper, but I don't. I'm just. I was just going to address what you were saying. Well, Ben Flanagan mentioned a second, mentioned a second ago that uh, all these peripheral characters, and let's take for, let's just take for granted at this point that uh, they are intended to be in, individual, uh, you know, existing people. Uh, but I really, what I really want to talk about is the cast, which I think is really almost an unsung uh, strength of this movie. So much is going to be discussed about the story and the. Uh, the visuals, but I think this is actually a really strong uh, cast, and I think that that's what you know. I think I think in the hands of a of a lesser cast, this movie may not have been quite as effective. I think it still would have been interesting, but I don't think it would have packed the punch uh, emotionally that it does. And I think a lot of it owes to Leonardo DiCaprio, which you know he's he's had a very good decade really here but I think this this is right up there uh, for him with a lot of the the very best stuff he's done in terms of the, the the more mainstream work he's done and you know one of the things really that 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 made me feel that way the scene that we were talking about earlier where uh, where we see maul jump to her death uh, 
you know, it's a scene that's basically there to kind of explain some backstory to us. And we we pretty much already know what's going to happen in the scene by the time we get there as well. But, man, DiCaprio absolutely gives it, you know, an incredible amount of effort in that scene. And his reaction to Maul jumping, uh, it's really haunting. I mean, it's, it's kind of terrifying to watch. And I think, you know, I kind of thought to myself, gosh, I think if you gave that assignment, if you said react to your wife jumping off a ledge... Uh, I, I think you could give that job to almost every working actor out there today, and I don't know that you'd get a more impressive, more emotionally, uh, you know, just terrifying, uh, you know, reaction out of out of any other actor than the way DiCaprio did that. Now, obviously, I'm picking out one scene, but I, I think the whole performance for him was just really strong. And and I mean, guys, tell me kind of what you guys think about the cast in general and and certainly Nolan gets credit for directing that cast I, I think it's uh, I think it's great I mean it's got um, DiCaprio is, is somehow is, is probably my favorite one of my favorite working actors and Joseph Gordon-Levitt is probably my favorite up and coming actor and after, I haven't seen him in anything else except for Star Trek Nemesis classic um, but now like Tom Hardy is probably one of my favorite up and coming actors and Ellen Page is great, and so he, Nolan really set up um, uh, a really great ensemble. But he also let each one really play to their own strengths. Um, with uh, just Gordon Levitt being the you know the very dapper, kind of calm, collected guy, um, and Tom Hardy being kind of the, the Bond surrogate, um, and DiCaprio being the, the kind of simmering time bomb. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I think he, it's just fantastic casting with, with great actors. I think one thing is just I'm hijacking this a little bit and going back to what I said earlier. Uh, I think it's pretty awesome that he took a, the James Bond character in uh, Tom Hardy and made his dream one of the levels from Goldeneye or Honor, Honor Majesty's Secret <laughs> Service. I think that's pretty awesome. Um, but no, the cast is great. Well, I thought... Uh standing out in this cast of good stuff was Marion Cotillard because I haven't seen her in much but she was chilling and I don't know if I, maybe the credit goes to Nolan and how he shot her and how the movie was scored but she scared the S-H-I-T out of me in a big way like I thought and I like her a lot and I think I she's gorgeous and there was just something really like that, that really shot when they're coming up the elevator and she's like looking at the top of oh, the yes. Yeah. That was scary. Terrifying. I did not like that one. No, I did not. I don't. I don't know that it helps the censoring process if you actually spell the whole word. By the way, <laughs> yeah, well, the babies in the audience won't know what I've said. Yeah, that's true. See, this is this is helpful. This is helpful. But I because she's there is a point at which beautiful people again shot right can be severe. And which is weird, because you never think she's, like, a severe-looking, beautiful person, but kind of her eyes are wide set, and they're big, and it, just I, something about it, like, really, really took my breath away in a scared way. I think she was a little bit grotesque, sort of, in Levian Rose. I mean, I think there were times in that where she was supposed to be kind of off-putting. Yeah, Not, but she was made up, also, off-putting, and this yeah. was her at her glamorous best, and it was just something was real unsettling about yeah. her. Um, first of all... It's unfair how good Joseph Gordon-Levitt makes clothes look. 
Uh, is he not? Is that like not the most well dressed character you've seen in a long time? We, what's striking to me is he always strikes me as really young, and I kind of was skeptical of him being in this cast because he still looks like a sixteen year old to me. But he he sold it like he he moves with a confidence that yeah okay yeah. Well, talk I'm about a girl, that. I can talk, say that. <laughs> talk 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 about that that badass. I mean, I'm sorry. This is going to go down the 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 second level. Arthur's basically Arthur's non gravity sequence is going to go down as like an all timer scene. I think it's just pretty in, awesome. in, in movies in general, just in terms of the way it was shot and the way it was executed by Joseph Gordon Levitt. Because I mean, I, I'm under the understanding that he did those stunts for the most part. Uh, you know, he's gone on record, and Nolan's gone on record saying he did. And you got to give credit to the other guys too. The the uh, the other actors who are his opposite that are fighting him, and Matt and I have been wanting to talk about, or we've been wanting to learn how they shot that scene, and they're pretty, they're you know they're sometimes explicit and sometimes very secretive about how they did it, uh, how they achieved no gravity. I mean, obviously, um, it's wires. They're doing extremely meticulous wire work here, but that's just something what they did. And I'm not going to be the first or last person to say this, but that's something that I've never seen before. And it was exciting to watch. The first time, I was just kind of awestruck uh, and just kind of went with it. But the second time, I really tried to pay attention. And I'm telling you, like, my mouth, I, like, I was completely, it was wide open. And I was just soaking it in and appreciating it. And I can't wait to watch that sequence again. Yeah, it, there, it, are, I mean, there are, there are certainly... They're willing to, to share with us the stuff that we could figure out looking at on our own, which one is the, the rotating uh, version of the set where uh, we, see, we see him sort of running around the walls and the ceiling, um, which, again, you can uh, fully aware of how it was done. It's still cool to watch and impressive to look at. And, uh, you know, the, the wire, some of, some of the scenes with, uh, that are done with wires, it's 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 again it's all good to look at, but it's pretty easy to know that it's wires. To me, there are a couple of shots that I'm not a hundred percent sure how it was done, and I'm wondering if some of it was done with the 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 so-called vomit comet uh, technique, where they where they actually build the set inside an airplane and and go on a a steep dive. Uh, just because but some of it looked like real zero gravity. Uh, and, you know, we saw that in, in Apollo 13. They shot it, you know, in some limited limited uh, extent. But, you know, they're not, they haven't really said that that's what they've done. Uh, Francesca, you're, you, you have something to say about this. Oh, well, I just wanted to sing the praises of Joseph Gordon-Levitt again because it occurred to me when you were talking about the rotating room that there's somebody else who's done that before. A one Mr. Fred Astaire. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I think, has the, as we saw in 500 Days of Summer, he can move. What are you talking about, certain... the running around the walls? Fred yeah. Astaire did that? Yeah, there was a dance number he did that he was, it looked like he was on the ceiling, and it was a rotating set and a rotating camera, however they do that. Right. And I think there is an element of that kind of graceful self-possessedness in Joseph Gordon-Levitt that, you know, Christopher Walken has the men who are, like, can dance as well as act. There's well, a certain gracefulness that they bring into their acting style. Well, you, you may remember his Make Him Laugh uh, sequence That's on right. Saturday Night Live. That's right. He's a song and dance man. Who knew it? Well, he said, yeah, he did backflips off of the wall. Remember, I, he said in interviews that he gained the confidence to do that 
because he had just recently shot Inception. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, and had been doing those, and he was like, okay, so I, you know, I just did Inception, so I'm going to do backflips off of the wall on SNL on live TV, so... <laughs> I that's think that's a, pretty awesome. I mean, that's sort of a, a classical and, you know, classic Hollywood actor that can do kind of the triple threat thing, which now, you know, is not really a necessity to be in Hollywood, but that may add to some of his charisma as a as an actor that we enjoy watching. Well, certainly the cop- That was my little side note about that. Well, thank you. I mean, just 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 to sort of segue that into into this sort of final topic I want to touch on. I mean, I think that sequence like you said Ben I think that really is I think most people are going to come away with that being the most visually impressive thing about this movie and it's funny because there is a lot of really good looking computer imagery in the movie uh there's some cool things that they some cool ideas they came up with that were rendered pretty well um but but ultimately, it's something that was probably achieved mostly with practical effects that's going to be the thing that wowed people the most. And I think that that really, uh, to, to me, that kind of says something about where we are today with summer blockbusters in that, you know, people people are sort of appear to be growing a little bit weary of the traditional summer blockbuster. People did not turn out in the same kind of numbers this year as they usually have. Uh, and I think people are just kind of tired of the same old tricks. You know, people aren't impressed, I don't think, by computer animation anymore. If you've, you've seen one monster at this point, you've seen them all. That technology can't really bring a lot to us anymore that's going to that's gonna impress us and wow us in, in the way that, uh, that it did initially when it came out when we saw things like Jurassic Park. And I think, I think what makes something original and what can give something a wow factor today is is doing something like Christopher Nolan did here, which is to actually go out and and build a crazy set and do something uh, that that we believe when we see it on screen because because it's real. We're not having to to suspend our disbelief as much because what we're seeing. Uh, was actually photographed, you know, and I, I think it's interesting that that that's sort of, uh, you know, that we that we're moving in that direction. But I guess what I'm what I'm leading to here is, you know, this movie was kind of pitched by the the film community as this was a big opportunity for the original idea, you know, for the for the concept that that it doesn't have to all be about franchises and. And uh, adaptations and sequels and and things that we've already seen five other versions of that that somebody can come out here with a new fresh original idea and people will get excited about it and people will buy into it and I want to know what you guys think about you know whether or not Inception was able to pull that off do you think that this movie you know, and we're only we're only a week in here. It's made a hundred million worldwide. Do you think this movie is going to have the kind of impact it needed to have to really change people's minds in Hollywood and make people be more open to original ideas? And let's let's start with Ben Stark. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think one thing that that we could kind of see this year um, is that the movies that have generated the most interest, uh, or let's say the, the uh, the stories that have generated the most interest have been ones that have been discussed on plot levels. 
like say what you will about the final season of Lost um, and Shutter Island and this movie and Toy Story 3. Those are like the four big discussion topics in the movies this year or in movies and TV. And all of them are based on story. Um, none of them are really based on um, visual flair. So I think uh, I think that's an interesting thing, and I think that uh, that <coughs> that uh, this movie. A lot of people say, you know, I just want to go see a fun movie um, in the summer. I just want to go to a ride, and this movie is is fun to watch, like, and it's fun to experience because. Every moment is filled with information, and the moments in between the moments of information, um, were, I spent the second time watching. I spent processing the information, so it's like this cognitive exercise to kind of keep your brain going the whole time. And it's so much more fun to watch a movie like this than one that's just stimulating on one level. And here you've got a movie that's stimulating on, on several levels. And I think it's pretty, it's pretty awesome that that you know the most popular movie arguably of the summer it works that way and I, I got I can't I can't turn over the mic before I I compare this movie to Avatar um, which I will I will grant that if this movie makes a ton of money um, that it'll be awesome that a, an original script idea in Avatar and then and an inception um, were so successful um, in back-to-back years but um, I really, I really think that this is kind of the antithesis to that movie, which was all about lush visuals uh, in, an, in an effort to escape reality. And whereas here you've got a film that um, that gives you a visual uh, visual representation of the real world and urges you to face reality and to deal with reality as opposed to escape it. And I think that's pretty awesome. So I think uh, to sum it up. Hopefully, yes, I'm an optimist, and I think that people will see that a film that's sold entirely on history and information um, can bring money into the box office. Ben Flanagan, please. So do we, did we decide that this was all Lucas Haas's dream? <laughs> I just it out there. Wasn't that Francesca that said that? Yeah, it was. Yeah, Okay. I buy that. Ben Flanagan, I want to hear your thoughts about the I, – I, well, basically your your prediction for how influential Inception is going to be moving forward. Um, <coughs> excuse me. I'm sorry. I think very much so because what was interesting about how this movie was pitched in the first place to Warner Brothers was not as – the next Leonardo DiCaprio vehicle. It was pitched as the next Christopher Nolan movie. And you, you had the same thing with Avatar. That was the next James Cameron movie. And you have these studios who were willing to rely on this single, wholly original idea from one person, from one artist who is capable of taking hundreds of millions of dollars and translating that on the screen that will somehow manage to communicate to mass audiences. Even when you you know you're paying you're paying five hundred million dollars for blue aliens, uh, you know, riding kangaroos and you're and you're, you know, giving two hundred million dollars to a dream within a dream within a dream 
where you can barely tell what's going on the first time you see it, yet you have this incredibly positive reaction from people. I think the word of mouth is going to be so good on this movie. And I think this is going to be one that definitely carry over, carries over to DVD, too. This is one that college kids are also going to be talking about, getting high while watching it and, uh, you know, uh, tripping to it, that kind of thing. It's going to have that sort of niche value, but it's also going to be well-respected in film school communities. It's going to be one that's taught. But in terms of the now and how much money that it can make in theaters and what, what kind of road that can pave for the future of original storytelling... I think that it's doing its job right now. And I think that its strong first weekend is already going to set the tone because I think studios are convinced not only is this movie going to make its money back, possibly domestically, it's going to do very well overseas. And I don't think it's going to take much more for them to say, okay, guys like James Cameron and guys like Christopher Nolan, they're capable of coming up with these unique ideas that audiences love in giving us these gargantuan uh, Hollywood projects that make us think and really sort of leave us in awe uh, at the end of the experience. So I think that this movie was not only supposed to succeed and, you know, steer Hollywood, which is in a really bad place right now uh, creatively in the right direction, I I think that it has succeeded. Yeah, and Ben, you mentioned... Uh, you know, the, the sort of commercial future just for Inception directly. I'm looking at the the upcoming release schedule here, and, you know, to me, I think this movie's probably the kind of movie that could get a lot of buzz going and could have a really strong second week. And when you look at this week, you've got Ramona and Beezus, which is not obviously not the same audience, and then uh, the, the big movie it will have to compete with is Salt, which I frankly think has been headed for disaster for quite a while. I think it's I think it's been poorly marketed, and I think it's it's not going to uh, it's not going to look as interesting to people as Inception is, particularly people that haven't seen Inception yet and have now started to hear good things about it. So I it's think it's getting good buzz, and people are going to see it again. Yeah, I mean, I think this, it's going to flop. If anything in the world is you know a rep- you know merits a repeat viewing, it's this film. Stark, are, are you saying about salt? You're, Stark, you're yeah, saying I'm talking about salt. Stark, you're saying you think salt has had good buzz so far? It has. It, what? It has. It has. It's had good buzz. What can I say? Uh, I it's think Philip Kaufman, uh, not Philip Kaufman, Philip Noyce. Well, look, people liked people. People had a pretty good reaction that actually saw it, like critical buzz for Night and Day. But obviously, that did not uh, that did not excite mainstream audiences who hadn't seen it yet enough to go and see it. I really feel like Salt is going to have kind of a similar uh, opening to Night and Day because I think it's a similar genre. I think it's a star that's a little bit past her prime. And and I think there's this other big juggernaut hanging out there now uh, in Inception that I, I personally, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Inception beats Salt this weekend. Never um, mind. I, I need to adjust my Twitter account. Um I was getting good buzz on it via Twitter, but then on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got 59. So, yeah, you're right. It's gonna suck. Well, no, Ben, Ben, that's fair because I think, like, as of yesterday, with, like, 20-something reviews, it was in, like, the high 70s. So I, I, I remember thinking to myself, this is, getting, this is getting better reviews than I thought it was going to. But I think most of them were pretty, uh, you know, they, they weren't singing its praises, so to speak. They were just saying, 
yeah, you don't have to think too much, and it's decent enough, you know. Uh, well, Francesca, I mean, what do you when let, let let me let me phrase it to you this way? I mean, when you're when you're looking at you know the movies that are that are out there for the rest of this summer, um, and we'll include Salt, but you've got you know Charlie Saint Cloud, Dinner for Schmucks, uh, the other guys. Uh, and then, you know, kind of that last weekend of the summer where you've got Eat, Pray, Love, Expendables, and Scott Pilgrim. I mean, really, until that last weekend I just mentioned, I mean, it, it, if you were going to a movie with some friends, would is there a movie you'd rather go see than Inception out of that group? I mean... Well, not not me personally. The general movie-going public is going to go see the Will Ferrell movie. Well, that's what gonna, I'm... But I think that this movie's going to hang around it's it's getting good word of mouth, and the people who see movies and have seen this are going to want to see it again. The people who, you know, aren't just going to the theater going, oh, what's playing, but the people who go to the theater with purpose are going to want to see this again, you know. And I think, with regards to is this going to change Hollywood, I think that what this is, the end result of this is going to be Christopher Nolan is going to get bigger budgets. I don't think that people can... Can, the, the image that keeps coming to my mind is from The Prestige. There's a trick that I think it's Hugh Jackman's character does. I've only seen this movie a few times where he makes a tree grow in front of the audience. And we get a shot. Ben Flanagan, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that we can see the, the inner workings, that this is gears, that this is a machine that is making this incredible illusion. But it is a practical thing. And I think that Christopher Nolan gives us the tools and goes, look, this is what I'm doing, and can still manage to make us filled with awe by what, you know, by these incredible things he's doing. And he's going, look, I'm giving you all the information, but there's some sort of panache and style with which he does it that makes it better than, you know, if somebody else sat down and wrote a twisty, plotted movie. He can add that element of magic, that je ne sais quoi quality that, you know, I think now he's just going to, like, officially be your go-to guy for your thoughtful movie. But That's what their grandmother says on the phone, on the cell phone. Never, never uh, mind. She says, yeah. I am the grandmother. <laughs> nice. So that's my thoughts on that. Is nobody going to take me up on the av- in Inception owning Avatar? Oh, please? Ben, yeah. I certainly agree with you. And I loved, actually, I mean, I really loved your point about this kind of being a polar opposite of it. And you talked about that, that uh, you know, this year the, the, the things that have gotten the most buzz have been about story. And I think really... Avatar, as it turns out, is certainly not about story. I mean, it's it's probably unfair of me to phrase it this way, but it's really kind of a movie built on a gimmick. Really, it, it's it's built. It was it was the first. Well, so is this, but it's a good gimmick. No, I don't think this movie's built on a gimmick. I, I, mean, I think so. I think Dream Thievery is a is a gimmick. Yeah, but, I, I think so. It's magicians. I, I mean, but, but look, at least it's a at least it's a gimmick that is uh, that continues to draw interest for more than, uh, you know, the first 30 seconds of the movie, which, I mean, to me, the gimmick of Avatar is that it was 3D, and that it was the first, it was the first really big, epic, serious movie of this new 3D wave, Uh, and, you know, people were excited to go see a serious movie done in 3D, and really, I mean, I can, I can tell you, I'd lost, it had lost its, 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 necessity for me the effect after the first hour certainly uh but i mean but certainly on 
on subsequent viewings, I'm sure it will as well, if I ever give that movie a subsequent viewing. But, you know, I, I just feel like the, the uh, you know, the, the interest in Inception <clears throat> is something that is a concept that we can that we can discuss at great length, and it has lots of ideas. You know, Ben Flanagan and I were discussing this week. There's there's kind of a little idea alluded to in this movie uh, about the just the idea that when they're in the limbo uh, stage of this, that you can sort of live decades, you can live an entire lifetime, and then you wake up and it's been an afternoon nap, but but you're still uh, mentally you've lived that life. And I think that's such an interesting idea, and it's just really a rather small part of this movie. Uh, you know, it's that kind of stuff that gives this movie a lot of depth and a lot of different things that we can continue to discuss, <clears throat> you know, on on repeat viewing for, for years to come. And it can really even inspire, you know, other storytellers to sort of take those ideas and run with them. I don't really think there's a lot in Avatar... Uh, that's, uh, you know, other than fan fiction, that, that's going to end up being directly inspired by what James Cameron created there. I don't know. I have another. I have another question of you guys, if we have the time. Go ahead. Um, what do you guys think about the the criticism that the the, the the depiction of dreaming in this movie isn't necessarily realistic? It's not like the Lynchian. Um, uh, representation of dreaming which is a lot more abstract and uh terrifying well they did uh, they lightly referenced that you know when he's first talking to ellen page and they're at the cafe he says do you remember how you got here you know there is they kind of at least reference that there's not a beginning you know that you know you never remember a beginning of a dream you just sort of take the moment that's happening as yeah, it's happening the the argument is that there's not a moment where somebody's giving uh, a valedictorian speech to their high school class in their underwear, and then everybody's face starts melting. Well, and that's because that's because the architect is capable of uh, having control of the oh, dream. Right, right. right, that's right. All they, they have to do, all they have to do is create this landscape, and if the landscape is realistic enough, the subject or the mark. Their projections will adhere to the rules of the landscape. Can I, I do like how lo-fi he made everything? By the way, just their their entrance into dreams is like just a cheesy looking, not cheesy looking, but just that it's very. Um, They're just there all of a sudden. It's, nothing's very. What's the opposite of digital? Analog. Everything's kind of very analog. There, which again sort of harkens back to his prestige. I think he's a little steampunky in his in his uh, sentiments that he tries Are to make things lo-fi. Are you saying the, the actual technology that they use, like that topical whatever? Yeah, that it's just and like they go to a guy everything. who has like you know grimy looking jars of potions, you know, like it's just an aesthetic choice that he makes that again kind of draws you in more. That it's not all you know digital lights and neon. That he actually makes it look like something some people just cobbled together in a back. Well, even the even the little dream machine is like a it's like a it's like a Sega Dreamcast. You I know, mean, all, an airline all, hostess can run it, for heaven's sakes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Just push uh, them. I, I have to say, there was a moment uh, that I did think they were starting to go the bizarre dream route. Mm. Uh, and it's when they go it's when they go into the second dream level with, uh, with Killian Murphy's character. And it, it opens up in, a, in, in kind of a hotel bar. 
and he's talking, oh, yeah. he's talking to this woman. Now, that, that it, Navi woman? As it turns out, I think it's just kind of a strange-looking uh-huh. woman. But for a second, I thought that she was deliberately distorted-looking. And I, that's, so, that's horrible to say because it's clearly just the way the actress looks. <laughs> but I did think for a second that it was that they were going that route. That they were about to say, oh, okay, well, now when you go further down in the dream, people start to look weird. Well, as it turns out, it's just a weird actor. But you know what? It, it, you wouldn't have stated as engaged, I don't think, because remember that J Lo movie that was like the box or what was it called? That was like, <laughs> the, the, yeah, the cell. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't see it. I saw the trailers, and that was dumb enough. The, for the me. box was bad too, though. Well, it, it wouldn't. You, you're not engaged if it's too. It 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 loses. It distracts from the plot if it's too visually... Yeah, it would have been a freak show, yeah. Eber gave the cell four stars. Did he really? Well, then yeah. I stand corrected, Ebes. But she kind of reminded me of, like, Lisa Marie and Mars Attacks. You know what I mean? Like this uh, film bot that doesn't really look real. Like you said, I mean, it, she does seem like this dreamed-up sort of strange version of a woman. It was like, just like her head was a weird shape or something. I wondered if they had actually put Tom Hardy in, like, woman makeup. At that point, I went, like, are they actually making him up to be these characters? Because she was so strange looking. I thought, man, hey, they really made him look like I, that guy. I hope by some chance this poor girl doesn't happen upon this podcast. I think it's highly unlikely. Yeah. Who, who was it that said they had only seen Tom Hardy in Star Trek Nemesis? Bingo. Why don't, you, why don't you put Bronson on your cue, man? Well, what if I already did? Did you did? Not see Marie Antoinette start? Uh, oh, he's in that? Yes, he is. Yeah, oh, okay. Blink and miss him. And he's in, he's in Layer Cake, too. He's got a small I've role. I've seen that, too. Okay. He's part, he's, part of Dan, he's part of Dan's crew, you know? His little drug dealing crew or whatever. I'm not crazy about Larry Cake, but I'll get to Bronson after I finish uh, Darkwing Duck Volume 1. Oh, boy. <laughs> I believe on that. The end. Yeah. All right. Well, guys, uh, thanks for joining me on this. I'm sure we will be talking more about Inception when we inevitably do our, uh, our 2010 Oscar podcast, or I guess it'll be 2011, but... Uh, I, I've got a feeling this movie is definitely going to be in the discussion when that time rolls around, and uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about it more then and talk about it as a serious contender. But uh, guys, thanks for joining me, and uh, we'll see everybody next time. Thanks for having us.